It feels poignant to be releasing this next episode with Akama Davies in the week that Derek Chauvin was found guilty of murdering George Floyd. One of the reasons the Life in Digital podcast was started was in response to the Black Lives Matter movement and the inevitable changes our industry and society needed to see. So many initiatives and black squares popped up everywhere, but real and authentic change needs to surpass performative allyship and be implemented into successful, robust and genuine DNI strategies. That's where Akama comes in. As Director of Global Solutions and Innovation at Zaxis and co-founder of We Are Stripes, a DEI consultancy whose mission it is to address the imbalance in the creative and advertising sectors. Akama is a thought leader for anyone seeking to address their DNI policies in 2021. And beyond that. <laughs> The actionable takeaways Akama shares throughout this discussion are not to be missed. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Life in Digital. Hi everyone, my name is Akama Davies. I'm really excited for discussion with Amy in Sphere Digital Recruitment. I'm Director of Global Solutions and Innovation at Zaxis, uh, which is the programmatic arm of Group M the world's largest media investment company. Uh, I also sit on the Zaxis DNI steering community at WPP and part of the employee resource group. And before joining Group M, I led Verizon Media's multicultural ERG globally. Seven years ago, I founded a DEI consultancy called We Are Stripes, and our mission is to address the ethnic imbalance in the creative advertising sector through recruitment, consultancy, and event support. And we work with a wide range of individuals and organizations over that time, um, from small independent agencies to large scale tech giants and national government. And we've we've loved working with you, I think, or being introduced to you guys, because we've spoken quite a lot on the podcast and just outside in our personal lives about DNI, but quite often strategy like mm -hmm. purely strategy and I think what was so beautiful about what you guys do is you really try and look at the actionable points so that people have a clear roadmap to reach those goals as opposed to just kind of talking about what it could look like and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about kind of your time at We Are Stripes and and if you feel like that's a true representation of what you're trying to do and, and how you're going about creating these partnerships with businesses. Yeah, absolutely. I think our approach has always been really action oriented. Um, so if I look back at the start of We Are Stripes, so seven years ago in the UK, in, in Adland, it looked a bit different to the range of initiatives that we have now, uh, spe specifically for the AME. Um, and one of the big things that we noticed and really started We Are Stripes is we saw an article that um, an unknown major ad tech company only performed uh, only uh, employed 2% uh, BAME, um, which we looked at it and we were shocked, but not surprised as it were. And a group of us got together and said, okay, we know this, we see this in our own careers. Um, we did a bit of investigation around other statistics, kind of capturing where uh, the industry was. We knew that there were a lot of kind of panel-based discussions, events, maybe talking around and surfacing some of the issues. Um, but what we didn't find um, collectively was a real path forward and something tangible and actionable that could be taken forward and then um, what we did is go out and really do a lot of research so speak to companies that were struggling to find diverse talent and um, speak to talent that were struggling to access the industry 
um, and also people that had left for whatever reasons, whether they got sick of it, whether they felt discriminated against, and really use that to define, okay, here are the issues that we commonly see and what can we do to, to solve them? And then as part of that, that journey that we went through over the seven years is really apply some of the skill sets and the rigor that we have as professionals, as media professionals specifically, to the challenges. Because um, I always say that if a client asks us to do something, we move heaven and earth, um, but we don't maybe do that for ourselves in the same way for, for the DEI approach. And it was always making sure that whenever we select something to work on or a client to work with, or start our own uh, initiatives, it always has to be super uh, tangible and super action oriented and just really scalable. Um, and a big part from that for me is coming from a product background, that's how I'd approach um, what I would do at, at Axis or Verizon Media. So I, I see that as no different with anything that I do at uh, We Are Stripes. And does it differ your approach with small businesses versus the larger businesses? Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think our approach has always been really tailored and really custom. So what we've done is look at the research that we've done over the years. Um, we've looked at those key challenges and issues, um, things like uh, having a clear strategy internally for how to cultivate talent, knowing where to go to source in um, diverse talent. Um, also being able to create that inclusive uh, space as well and um, really shining a light on um, across the industry the AME talent um, and not just around issues of diversity issues around their um, particular specialisms and, and discipline um, as well so that was always having that basis and then what we do is say with the learnings that we have with the strategy that we have um, with that best practice really understand what the challenges are for those individual companies. Um, and often what happens is we will get a brief through or inquiry through um, and it might say, oh, we are having an issue with uh, our CVs going out or um, we're not getting enough through the pipeline. But there's often things that you unpick during that discussion, which means a, a more integrated strategy and, and maybe some longer term planning. Um, and that really varies in terms of the scale of the organization. Um, what we found is that it's easier sometimes in the smaller organizations to change the tide in terms of pipeline. And because of the size, if you look at proportionally the, the numbers, you can make a huge impact with just a number of tweaks to a recruitment strategy. Um, but what is often harder to change is uh, some of the cultural challenges that make people stay and create um, the issues that, that um, ultimately are, are factors in people leaving as well. So we always suggest that, yes, we could do that, but let's also do a deep dive analysis, do the data work on what the environment is like, because otherwise you're gonna come back to us again or someone else again and, and get frustrated. Uh, with the larger organizations, and, and that's something that I, I have firsthand kind of working for, obviously Group M and Verizon, like massive, piece of uh, companies is just understanding like what the points of influence are and trying to create um, structures and policies in place that really outlast individuals driving the change mm -hmm. because we know that churn or movement through those organizations is far more rapid so if you create a structure of a policy if someone who's great at leading an ERG leaves that stays effectively um, and then the other part is just understanding business and um, knowing 
where to pull the levers of um, to create diversity and inclusion across the different strategic business units. So that ranges from HR to learning and development um, to um, some of the, the hiring managers to the inter uh, departments that they might have. Um, and that's a more concerted effort and you've got to do a lot more, um, I would say like senior level influence in order to be successful in the long run. So it's just um, a similar kind of core of approach and learnings, but the execution is uh, strategically different based on the size and scope of the organization. Mm. Yeah, I really, that's really interesting, that standing the test of time and not being rested on the shoulders of one individual or a few individuals, because if mm -hmm. they leave, what happens? Yes. Really yeah, interesting exactly. way to think about it. And so hiring obviously is a big part of what we've been speaking to you about, something that mm -hmm. not just our agency clients talk to us in depth about how we're going about hiring and having a more diverse pipeline, but um, across all the digital sector. How have you been approaching that advice and what have you seen working when it comes to hiring? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so the, the, uh, the first thing that we do is just look at what the practice is already. Um, and what we found is that the, the gulf between really tapping into those pipelines is, is actually not as broad um, a shift as it might be, but it just needs refinement. Mm. So the, the practices are, are, are common. I think most people are using CVs. We're also encouraging uh, organizations to use different methods of assessing talent and, and finding them. Um, uh, again, just really overhauling, like what is it that you're, you're currently doing? Um, really scrutinizing it in an objective fashion. So referrals are a really interesting one. Um, there's good sides and there's bad sides. Uh, to referrals, um, if you have a particular type of homogenous group, referrals effectively work off closed networks, so you propagate that, so you have more of that group being referred in. But again, there's massive cost implications um, to having referrals. It's often a lot cheaper than than other methods for organisations. But we're trying to really strike a balance between the different processes. Um, we look at what the outreach is, so. Um, multiple layers so what is what is the message that you're communicating um, and where is it going to and how is that being perceived at the other end um, and that could be a review on the actual ad uh, the job ad itself um, the job description itself um, working with uh, sphere for example we've done that mm -hmm. in the past to great effect and really uh, solved um, by by taking some of your your learnings and best practices and applying dni uh, knowledge to that um, for, for particular organizations. Uh, then we look at, so what, what are you doing to, to reach those communities? Is it just LinkedIn? Um, there's a wealth of, uh, especially now, um, uh, BAME creative networks or BAME media professional networks. Is it reaching uh, those groups in terms of your communication? And also on that last bit of how's it being received, is the message coming across authentically? Uh, because I, I know it myself, I know that me being also talent within the industry, um, you might have outreaching like, is this disingenuous? Is it tokenistic? Are you sincerely going to create an environment that I would feel welcome there? Um, are you doing the legwork um, in order to, to make sure that my career will grow there? And, and we, we cover all of that in terms of 
um, support because oftentimes it might need endorsement from either ourselves or, or one of the other networks in order to, to really get people excited and interested and confident about applying for the roles. Yeah, I love that. And it's something that, like you said, we spoke about. It's the language that you're using in CV. Mm. It's the job page on your website. All of these things yeah. people will look at. And if you don't represent a wide range of the community, you're not going to attract that, which which can be a catch-22 because if you're not already mm. have that makeup in your company, then how do you attract those kinds of people and um, have you had many people at that stage where it's really an overhaul of the makeup of their company and how are you kind of interrogating that yeah um i think that's more often the case um and even if a uh, company is, is doing a, uh, or quite mature in their journey there's still things that we will look at across the entirety of how they engage and, and you're so right amy because even little things like what are you putting on when you're showing the leaders of your business on a certain part of your site? Um, what does that mean for someone who doesn't look or identify with any of those individuals or what you're posting on your social media, um, et cetera? Because often these are the first places that people will look um, outside of, of just the, the job ad. Um, one example that I, I wanna showcase, and, and they've been fantastic, uh, is Kindred. Mm. Um, so Kindred is, a, uh, is an independent agency based in London. Uh, it's about 60 people um, and they were at a period where they, they made really fantastic and strong advancements in terms of the, uh, the gender diversity, particularly at senior levels. Um, but when we first uh, got in contact with each other, it was more about, okay, let's just see what you do um, and see how you can support us in a, in a few different kind of outreach programs. And then we started to talk about maybe some of the areas that um, they felt that they could do better and really wanted to do better. And that is one thing that, that made all the difference really is just that genuine authenticity to change and knowing that they're willing to just be open and take the hood off about what some of the challenges are. And the first thing that we did was survey the entirety of the company, um, review all of their uh, recruitment process, find out what the points of friction were, uh, and uh, attrition in terms of people exiting or where they're not maximizing the uh, reach, particularly to diverse communities um, as well. And that process um, probably isn't something that a lot of organizations think first and foremost, they're, they're more looking for amplification of their job descriptions to bring talent in, but it's such a necessary step. Um, and that process took a good few weeks before we even started working on the strategy with them. What was what was great to see in that example was we got time in with every hiring manager in the business as well as all the senior leadership to really do a, a deep dive analysis of, of what the data presented, what the learning and best practice was, what we observed over that time that we were consulting with them. Um, and uh, what we found has been effective is it's not just us. And we do create playbooks in terms of this is what you need to do and there you could literally read it and, and, and go out and do it. But it wasn't just that, it was really that discovery for them as an organization and upskilling them and making them own and become accountable for their own strategy um, to take away and accepting that that journey. And that was probably about two years ago since we've worked with them, um, took time to get to, to where they are today, which is in a far more positive place. Um, and we have regular check-ins with them almost on like a, a six monthly basis just to 
tease out certain ideas, etc. And and it's um, just proven that actually willing to go that extra bit and be a bit more comprehensive in the approach, um, I really changed it, and it not just changed the uh, the where they're accessing um, diverse talent, specifically VAME talent, uh, but actually the overall inclusion of the organisation uh, was boosted as well by that process. And with those guys, with Kindred, mm-hmm. is that an ongoing relationship? Is it something you have to keep measuring? How does how does that work and grow? Yeah, so we agreed a, a kind of set period of time to closely monitor it um, as part of the investment they made on consultancy. So that was uh, just about nine months in total. But then what happens is we, we set up We Are Stripes because we wanted to make change. Like we all have our own roles and careers in the industry but we we see it as a, as a vehicle to make change first and foremost so we will um check in and just see how they're doing see how they're progressing and then conversely if there is maybe an ad hoc question or something that comes up that they just wanted to get our perspective of like we're always open to that and um, we'll pick up the phone and, and just have a, a chat and, and see how we can best guide them and similarly as well um one of the things that we're keen to do and and i think it's really really important for all of the dni groups in adland to do is to work together like our approach is very much like a syndicated one in terms of the network and um, very much in terms of the services that we offer so even if it's something that wasn't catered for by us we would say these are the people that are are fantastic at that specific area or can cover these topics or we can work together with them uh, just because ultimately our mission is still just to to really open up those opportunities. And you mentioned that you spoke to senior leadership team and and kind of Mm -hmm. that that top level of management. And it seems crazy, I don't know why, it just seems crazy to me that we even have to ask for buy-in. It seems like quite a, I don't know, I I just assumed most people thought about this thing, but it's very apparent that it's not having spoken to a lot (laughs) of you guys. So how do you get that bit right? Because I know some people will ask for uh, champions of diversity and inclusion to lead it but then like you said what happens when those people leave the business so how do you approach that and is it perhaps it's really different for every business but what are your thoughts around that yeah I, I think the the first piece is is just really recognizing that we are a very executive driven industry like mm-hmm. everything stems from the leadership in our organizations obviously the culture is everyone but we, most um, agencies, most media owners are a reflection of their leadership. And also, first and foremost, the prioritization of their leadership. And and I think that there is, and I agree with you, um, it felt like something that was often self-evident, um, but actually in reality, I think leaders were aware of it, but maybe in all of the range of priorities, it may have been number two or three, and then it just gradually went down that list. And oftentimes it was easier because it's often uncomfortable because leaders are, are, are have a pressure to, to know everything, to drive any, everything, to say, look, I don't know anything about this area and I'm going to expose myself and maybe expose some things that are closer to the bone than any other bit of the communication that I will give to the rest of uh, my team, my, my colleagues, my employees. Again, we really stress the fact that that vulnerability is appreciated that humility in terms of saying look we don't know everything but we're working on it even if they identify as part of that uh, community themselves is again uh, greatly appreciated people gravitate gravitate towards that and 
uh, will be more respected as a leader. And then uh, what we try and do is, is uh, really kind of tap into the psyche a little bit in terms of what is it that motivates that leadership to drive change. Um, and the good thing um, about uh, DEI is that it, it makes sense and has so many positive aspects, whether that's purely commercial, whether that's cultural, whether that's reputational, whether that's your creative output, the work that you do, um, whether that's how you engage and, and make talent attractive. So just finding out, okay, so where are the pain points um, and detailing that narrative um, around that. And I think that's the bit that, that kind of gets the bite. And then one thing that really transforms it and we find, and we, we use this a lot is, you create like a moment of revelation and you, uh, we've been in the room sometimes where we've seen that penny drop and then they've understood, okay, actually this is what it's like on the floor. I, I have absolute sympathy because oftentimes leadership are always getting presented a version of the reality of their company. Everyone who engages with their CEO typically has an agenda and um, something that they wanna get out of that conversation. So uh, having an external party just strip all of that away and just present kind of some harsh reality, a reality sometimes often creates those moments of revelation, um, particularly on the, the more human stories that, that emerge. And you've been doing it for seven years, you said. So mm -hmm. I'm assuming you've seen a lot, well, maybe actually not as much change as you would like, I'm assuming. Particularly last year felt like the penny dropped for a lot of people because there was, because of social media and just yeah. this responsibility that what you're doing is being monitored. So if you're saying you're doing these initiatives, what does that look like in a year's time, two years time, three years mm -hmm. time? For you, have you kind of experienced that with lots of people saying, we're gonna do all of these amazing things, but then it falls at the wayside. Have you seen that already happen or what's your kind of feelings around that moment? Yeah, it's, it's, a, great, it's a great question because that was probably, I, I obviously in the wake of everything that was going on, like on a kind of personal emotional level, it, it was quite tough, but then um, we massively were a lot busier in terms of even conversations that people reached out and were like, oh, again, that prioritization piece. Um, they they instantly circled back and said, right, we have to, to figure out what we're doing here. Um, and I think what was interesting about what was emerging from the uh, Black Lives Matter activity of last year, which uh, impacted obviously black communities, but a lot of other um, DNI communities as well, is that the, the position of silence was no longer tenable. So you couldn't take a neutral position or not. I'm not mentioning it. You had to actively be anti anti-racist or um, kind of actively be anti-exclusion um, within that and that really shifted a lot of people into um, action. What always happens is there's a lot of activity and then not a lot of change so I was really glad to see that another thing that came through and we saw this happen in our industry but also at, um, in other industries and at, at a governmental level as well is that policy started to change and um, because exactly as you mentioned um, with the rise of social media there was a real demand for people to be more publicly accountable and leaders specifically to be more publicly accountable and we saw the the letter that went out from creative equals about the the 10 steps uh, to adlan which was signed by i think maybe 400 ceos uh, across adlan uh, and that really did two things like one those 10 steps are a blueprint. So if you're if you're trying to do those as best as you can, you're gonna make progress. And two, 
it allows us for really the first time ever across those three years to have something public to hold organizations uh, to account for. Um, what's happened since then? There has been some progress, um, maybe not as much as we'd hoped, but I, I fully recognize that it will take time. I think it will be even a generational shift in some instances. But now, again, and it's something that I personally have discussed with uh, Campaign Magazine, and um, I saw Drum put the article out last year, they're grading people based on their progress against the promises mm. at periodic periods. So, um, there's an article that they did which looked at all of the uh, major holding co's and the progress that they've made so for example we as WPP got graded against the the promise of um, uh, 30 million going to charities etc um, some of the recruitment practices that we have ad adapted in terms of our process and we it's really lit a fire under under us to get those done and now in terms of the leadership scorecards they all have uh, DNI uh, KPIs against them. So again, um, it should create the change. One because it's public, and two because it's uh, policy to really um, to really make the difference and not just fizzle out. As much as you want it to just be accepted by everyone, it needs to be measurable, right? Because yeah. if it's not measurable, then things can look really good on the outside or look terrible on the outside, but actually yeah. the data shows something different. Say you're not in a company that cares and mm -hmm. you want to be part of that change. Like, how can an individual kind of respond mm -hmm. to what's happening and continue the, the momentum? Yeah, I think I think there's um there's a couple of things that you can do as, as an individual, or a few things that you can do as an individual. So the first is a lot of the um challenges that are faced um uh, particularly with underrepresented groups are things that we solve at the individual level and that a company can take so far as an organization but effectively a, a company is just a collection of individuals so those individual exchanges are going to make the difference and things like micro uh, aggressions are, are a perfect example of that and that happens colleague to colleague which we uh, which has a huge detrimental impact and um, we've seen some research to show that those comments or those slights or those periods or, or those um, acts of active exclusion um, have the same psychological responses like physical pain. They stimulate the same areas of, of your brain. Um, and that's something that we can serve to all, one, not do it ourselves um, and educate ourselves to do better. And two, kind of um, call it out and, and help stamp it out as well. Because when you're on the other end of it, sometimes you're not you don't have the time to process it but someone observing can do and can advocate in that moment or can at a later date check in with the individual on the receiving end or someone who, who may have made it and kind of walk through the areas of what their intent is and and how that played out so there's there's all um kind of individual stuff like that which are going to affect the cultural stuff because um you raised the, the point of measurement and I think there's things that can be measured and then there's stuff which is still very much intangible around inclusion and, and that is um, all of our responsibility um, in order to, to execute that. The other thing is um, ensuring that your team or your individual unit are making sure that they're fully aware of and making use of all of the, the, the DNI resources and opportunities that might be sitting within an ERG or that might be sitting in uh, a HR team or a HR individual 
and applying that in your day-to-day -day practice or if you do see something that interests you just bring that in and see if you can trial it in your uh, individual team um, and then I, I guess finally is just that self-education piece so there's a number of different groups you can join a number of different networks uh, whether you identify as part of that community or not and just really um, absorb that content um, take part in that really understand so that you can be either kind of uh, a, a better advocate for yourself or for other communities and, and, and a better ally as well um, and we've seen that that allyship is is really what's making um, the difference um, now more so than ever. Going back to the microaggressions I think mm. it's something that I've been grappling with is some people just don't want to be called racist and that's a really mm. uncomfortable conversation to have and it can almost mm. shut down these barriers yeah have you found ways of creating a culture that keeps people accountable and is it always direct or is it mm -hmm. about having hr involved or is it about having a space that you can talk about these things mm. or do you think it is really tackling it head on and speaking to those people yeah i think the um, and in our experience the, the key thing has always been that each case is super contextual so yeah. and um to to your question of um that it depends on the level of severity of the action or the comment as well um and i i certainly advocate for if it's hitting that threshold or you feel it might be go and consult with hr like instantly make sure that you are protecting yourself covering yourself if you need to and um, have that um again also people should be empowered to um uh, use their discretion as well but i think the the approach that we're using is, is a few different ways so um we first educate people because a lot of people don't even know what microaggressions are yeah. don't know how to recognize them in themselves don't understand the impact so our learning and development team and something that we um, actually, again, all, like all of the, the training that we do at, at Zaxis, for example, we make publicly available. So anyone can go on um, zaxis.com and I think there's about 20 uh, DEI modules that we've crafted and, and made available that will help educate people on, okay, this is what microaggressions are. These are the impacts of them. This is actually a business critical thing because it's making people leave or not making people want to contribute this is how if i am on the receiving end i deal with it in the moment because sometimes you can be blindsided by them so it takes time to process your emotion um, and what we always say is make sure you take a proactive action right so whether that's in yourself you need to go away and give yourself the own reassurance based on that comment and validate yourself whether that's speaking to a colleague just to to understand and decipher that a little bit or whether that's speaking to the individual or individuals that have made that comment and using that and we always say using it as an opportunity to to educate because uh, we're trying to have a progressive conversation then why why that was problematic why it was offensive what the implications of it are and um i always say in those conversations just really if you can whether you're the ally or whether you're the, the kind of uh, on the receiving end of it always try and understand the intent of that because it will help frame how you, how you tackle that conversation. I think specifically when we look at race and particularly where uh, the, the fear, and we found uh, for a lot of white people, is to be called racist. And there is an amazing uh, book, I forget the author now, uh, but it's called White Fragility and, and it is quite hard hitting. And there's like a, a, there's like a two minute audio clip that I always send to people who are trying to just understand 
it and understand why sometimes people, even if something that they say is racially problematic or has racist connotations or perceived as racist or is racist, they struggle with that label. And because particularly in the UK, how we understand race and race relations is that if you're a racist, you're someone who intentionally sets out to cause harm or to drag someone down based on their race. But there are a range of things that you can do that are um, racially problematic without having that being intentional. So ha when any conversation is broaching that area, people will naturally get defensive because they're saying, well, I'm not doing that. That's not me. That doesn't represent how I feel about a situation or how I've been brought up, raised, etc." And they see racism only in this one very narrow definition of, of what it means. And it's to say, like, look, it's actually broader. And it's not just about you as the, the, the person who's saying the comment or doing the action. It's also about the reception. And I think sometimes uh, with it, and particularly issues about race, we don't focus enough on the person on the other end and how that made them feel and the impact on them. And does this feed into why we're maybe not seeing so much ethnic diversity at leadership levels because this is kind of happening at all stages of someone's career and giving an uncomfortable environment even if the person doing the comments doesn't actually realize mm -hmm. is there something that feeds into that and I think also we've spoken about um having mentors or having something for people to rely on if they're not getting that support in their company mm. is there something you can say about that yeah absolutely i think i think um on the mentoring point i everyone should have a mentor I, I firmly believe that um and i think if you can have more than one have more than one and it's important when you're selecting or reaching out to mentor that you have someone who um uh, can really obviously provide you the guidance from their own circumstance, but it sometimes is is really vital to have someone who understands maybe some of the challenges that you may have as um, as an Asian professional in this um, in this industry, or as a black professional in this industry, or as a as a female in this industry as well. To really one understand that context, and it means that you're not having to almost explain yourself when you're describing the challenges that you need the mentorship around that understood under and all of the, the all of the areas around them are, are fully understood um, as well um and also uh, furthermore i think that often mentors typically don't have to be but typically are more senior so there's a, also a level of see it be it and aspiration in that side of things so i think that that's pivotally important i think the issue of why organizations are maybe more white at particular senior levels is, is it is a bit complex I think um, certainly there's been a factor of people as particularly in startups accelerate to growth very quickly so they recruit from their own network and um, then the immediate like the first 10 employees are often a reflector of the immediate founders and they and there's often I, I would say maybe a, a perceived need i think it's often a misconception that i just need to hire people quickly i just need to get we're in and we'll deal with the diversity later when we are more established it, the time is right at the start if you set those policies up one we know the evidence is there that you're going to be more successful even in those early periods and two when you start to scale you're not going to have the issues of redressing some of the decisions that you could have made earlier in that journey 
The other side, is, um, as you, you mentioned, is around race. And I think race is, it's been taboo. It's been really uncomfortable. I would say that the open conversations that I see and, and that I'm involved with about race have increased exponentially in the past two years. Mm-hmm. And, and, it's, and because of how public and how widespread everything was on social media and the context of last year was like no other in like our history in the fact that everyone was at home and all you could do is consume media. And uh, my own kind of personal theory is that we were all forced, particularly in that period of like April-ish, that, that start of, of last year, um, to make personal sacrifices to help other individuals that we don't know. So that real human kind of greater societal link was probably at its highest. And we weren't busy consuming with all the other distractions that come with being out, allowed to leave the house. And it meant that when we were seeing and hearing these stories, they, they resonated. We had really time to absorb them. And because there wasn't a lot going on, people are saying, well, have you heard this? Is that your experience? Is that my experience? I didn't know that was a thing. For the first time, people really had the time not just to, to hear the stories, but just to actually listen to them as well. Um, and I think now we can have more confident conversations about race. Before, probably not. And I use the term BAME. I know people uh, feel various ways about it. I just use it because it's, it's commonly used um, in the UK and, and not just used by our industry, by others. But again, it is one of those examples that's often cited as softening, actually having the conversation about race yeah. by using an acronym. And I think the more confident that we get it, the, the closer to the root of the challenges that we're going to have. And so what's your hope for the future? What's your, in the short term, in the long term, I know you've got quite a lot of fun personal <laughs> stuff going on, um, but do you want to talk about what the future you're hoping to look like? Yeah, so I I, I, I was asked this question maybe about a few, three years ago when we were doing an award submission and they said like, what's the long-term future for We Are Stripes? And ultimately, yes, we want to kind of grow and have impact, but we ultimately want to, get to a position where we don't have to be as active or active at all because everyone is educated enough organizations are educated enough we as an industry and that's what I hope is just representative of our wider society and and I'm I'm a competitive person like I I want our industry to be the most competitive and the most attractive and the only way we do that is ultimately by being um, the most inclusive so that's certainly um, kind of my hope is that we can access the wider range of talent because I see it in examples all the time like even when we do um, engagement with schools or universities and colleges like the other sectors like the laws the accounting the engineering are winning that fight they are winning it hands down and the level of engagement that they have and understanding that they have is is different and I hope I hope that in the future we can kind of win that uh, battle as well and and one small thing that I always kind of use is, is that I will know when we as an industry have made it because this happened is um, when say that we have a, a, a black leader or a, a black CEO and they become the noun and not the pronoun, i.e. they're not a black CEO, they're just a CEO. And then we've normalized um, diversity and success and it doesn't have to be that one person who's the one example who stands out from the crowd it's more normalized it's more representative um and i think the moment that i have that will be a will be a happy day <laughs> it's gonna happen yeah. definitely Absolutely. 
and you've got your baby girl coming into the yeah, world. Yeah, yeah, literally any day now. Um, so she's due in two weeks, but yeah, we're, we feel like um, it could literally be any day. I keep on looking over to my wife and I'm like, is it time? <laughs> do we need, to, do we need <laughs> to head out the door in a hurry? So yeah, super, super excited. Super exciting. Well, thank you so much for your time. And is there anything that we haven't managed to cover off that you want to get across? Um, I just would say that, um, again, just a shout out to anyone who's looking at either their current setup around DNI or um, or they haven't started on that journey or they feel that they could do something differently. Uh, please do get in touch with ourselves as well, but also any of the other DNI groups uh, also. So we can we can certainly act as like a, a signpost um, too. And similarly, um, from kind of talent and recruitment perspective, consult with Sphere because they're, they're doing the right things and they're um, over the years as well, have been speaking to the likes of us and, and other groups about how in terms of um, recruitment companies can really change the practice for the better um, at all levels and especially at, at that future talent level as well. So again, just uh, reach out and, and uh, get in contact with them about how they can help you. big thank you to Akama. This is one of my favourite episodes and I learned so much speaking to him. If you want to find out more about the work we are Stripes are doing, please do check out our show notes, our website for the link, or just simply go to www.wearestripes.org.uk. We hope you'll join us in a few weeks time for another episode of Life in Digital.